Hey, I got to give you a disclaimer this morning. We're going through some meaty sections of God's Word here in Galatians. Last week, I got a nephew who goes here who likes to time things. As I walked out to the prayer corner, he had his iPad and his dad was there. He said, that was 53 minutes. <laughs> so brace yourselves. Today's another one of those weeks. But I figure, hey, guess what? If we can binge watch Obi-Wan Kenobi for hours or we can hang out for five hours at a barbecue tomorrow, we can spend some time devoted to God and his word, right? Okay, so grab your coffee if you need to. Here we go. Last week in the book of Galatians, you remember that, that Paul brought home the point to those Christians in Galatia that no one is justified by the law. No one's made right before God by obeying the law. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Faith. And then he used the example of Abraham, the father of Israel, right? Pointing out that he trusted God and that was credited to him as righteousness. Long before he was ever circumcised. Okay, so he got there. But this week in Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15, he's going to deal with a different side of that. The people there teaching them that they had to follow the law as well might say, okay, that was true in Abraham's day, but centuries later, Moses came along and God gave the law to, to Moses. So certainly God changed up. That was good for Abe, but since the law came later, God, God changed the way he works with humans. Paul's going to say, uh-uh. It, it has always been by faith that folks are saved, always is by faith, and always will be by faith. Okay? Verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. We know this, at least with people of integrity. When you make a covenant with someone, you, you keep it. How would you like it if you had a mortgage for $125,000 and you were mostly through it, and then your mortgage company called you and said, oh, we uh, changed up the documents and we just wanted to let you know that's that house you're in, it's now $400,000. Say, so, uh-uh. No, we have a contract. So even people of integrity don't, don't change things. Think about uh, the covenant of promise and the law. I think about it kind of like this. Paul's making the point the law doesn't change it. it. It comes alongside the covenant. Imagine 1998, Carolyn and I make our vows to each other, till death do us part, Right? And then five years later, we have to buy a car. So I go to the car store, find a car, sign a contract. And, and I come home and say, Carolyn, I got bad news. I signed a contract for a car today, so it's all over. It's me in the car now. <laughs> it's foolish, right? That car contract comes alongside the, the marriage covenant I made to Carolyn. It doesn't replace it or change it. Paul's going to say the same thing about the law okay verse 16 he brings out another reason it's always by faith he says those promises were made to abraham and to his offspring it does not say into offsprings with an s referring to many 
but referring to one and to your offspring. Who is that offspring? Christ. Let me ask you a question. Were, were all the promises made to Abraham fulfilled in his lifetime? Did he see the fulfillment? No. No. In fact, Paul says they would not be fulfilled until Christ came and in and through him. And I'll tell you, in Christ, there are still more of those yet to be completely fulfilled. So why does he say this? He says Moses in the law could not have changed the promise because God hasn't even totally fulfilled the conditions of that promise yet. The law doesn't set that aside. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. One more illustration of this. Friday, we took the boys out for an Italian meal to celebrate the end of school. Now, can you imagine if I order my cannelloni, and then later on she comes and says, hey, do you guys want any additional drinks? And I say, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. And uh, she says, oh, does that mean you don't want the cannelloni? No, that Dr. Pepper does not replace the cannelloni. It is meant to come alongside the cannelloni. Okay, get it? That's what the law does. It comes alongside the covenant of promise for a purpose. So you say, and maybe the people there in Galatia and their false teachers are going to say to Paul, okay then, smarty pants, why then the law? If the law can't save, why did God give it, Paul? Okay, he's going to give us two primary reasons. And I'm going to bring out a, a couple more that I believe are true as well. The first one is, to show sin to be transgression. Okay, say, so wait, wait a second. Last week you said we know we're sinners by our conscience, even if we don't have the law. That's true. So what's the difference between sin and transgression? To show sin to be transgression. I'll explain that. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay. A transgression is when you knowingly violate a specific law of someone. Before the law of God, you may know generally in your conscience you're a sinner because you feel that guilt. But as soon as God writes it down, you have no excuse. You know you are violating the law of a holy God. It's the difference between climbing a fence into a, a property that's not yours you have this general sense of guilt and climbing a fence into a property that's not yours when there is a sign right there that says no trespassing according to the law of Chino Valley or whatever. You know darn well that that's a transgression. It shows our sin to be a violation of a holy God. But he says it was added because of transgressions. People are sinners, right? So what's it mean because of transgressions? Is it to restrain sin? I believe that's part of it. We know that the ability of law to do that is limited, right? But it has some value. There are some folks, when there's a law and a consequence, they'll abide by that law that wouldn't abide by it if there weren't such consequences. We live in a nation of laws for that reason. Do they work perfectly to stop sin and evil? No, we'll talk about that more later. But there's a limited ability to restrain sin. 
more central, I believe, is to reveal sin for what it is, just like we talked about with the sign. Paul brings up in Romans that it even provokes sin within sinful men. He says, I didn't know what coveting was till I read the law. And then all of a sudden, I, I start battling more with, with coveting, right? Is that the fault of the law? No. Where's the fault lie? The, the heart of, of sinful man. Paul says the, the law is holy and righteous and, and good. The human being, when he sees don't, wants to do. <laughs> I think of it like this. We've been here 20 years, and for a long time, many of the lakes around here you couldn't swim in. There were signs, no swimming. And almost every time we'd go to the lakes, we'd talk about, oh, it would be nice if we could swim in there. Guess what happened a couple years ago? Some of the lakes opened up to swimming. We've gone maybe once or twice in two years, and we rarely talk about it anymore. I think some of what was going on is we wanted to do just because it said don't, right? We all know that in our lives, the, the temptation, okay? There's another reason for the law, the Old Testament in its entirety, really, the whole Bible, but let's focus on the law to show us the character of this God that we worship. What, what is he like? I was reading some James Montgomery Boyce this week, and he really brought this out, just looking at some of the Ten Commandments. I shall have no other gods before me. That tells us something very central about our God. He is God, and there is no other. So while we may not be going around worshiping Baal or Molech, as believers, there, there should be no, no place to put self on that throne or, or money or, or work or even something as good as family. Only God. There's, there's only one God. That's what it tells us about him. No graven image. The second commandment. Don't, don't make anything in an attempt to, to symbolize me and, and worship me. Why? Well, there's irony here because as God was giving the law to Moses, what were the people down there doing with Aaron the priest? They were doing this very thing. They're, they're making a bull. And when you read Aaron's words about it, it's not so much that it was supposed to be some other God from the God who delivered them. He was attempting to use that bull to honor the God who delivered them from Egypt. Why do we do that? We, we think we can picture God with our puny human brains. Oh, oh yeah, those Egyptians worshipped a cow to show his strength. So we'll use this to show the strength of our God. What's wrong with that? Listen, strength of a cow or any other creation does not compare in the least to the strength of our God. You take that with any of his attributes. You can't accurately represent him. You bring him down in your mind when you attempt to do that. You say, well, I'm not making any golden calves. That's good. Okay, but what about your perception of God up here? Do you worship the God of the Bible? Or have you crafted a God in your mind of your own image? Well, I don't like this aspect of God, so I'm going to tone that down a little bit. I really like this one, so I'll just focus on that one to the exclusion of all the others. You have made a false image of God. Are you worshiping the God of the Bible or a God you've made? 
He's higher than any of our representations. That's what it speaks of him. What about don't take his name in vain? We all know and have heard that means I shouldn't go around saying OMG in its entirety, right? And I agree with that. Christians have no place using his name in such a careless manner, but it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. And the Bible names tell us something of God's character. So anytime we don't honor who he is according to his names, we're not honoring his name. What do some of the names of God mean? Yahweh. Yahweh is the relational God who keeps his covenant with his people. So if I live a life constantly unbelieving the promises that God has made to me, I am taking the name of Yahweh in vain. How about Jehovah Jireh? God is my provider. If I live a life constantly unbelieving that God is going to provide for my needs, I am taking the name of Jehovah Jireh in vain. His names tell us something about him. All the commands tell us something of his righteousness and his love and his grace. Okay, there's the reasons, right? Restrain, reveal, provoke transgression, show God's character. Paul goes on in verse 19. So why then the law was added because of transgressions until, that's an important time word, the temporary, until the offspring should come. Who was that offspring? Jesus. Jesus. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Okay, it was temporary. Until he goes on, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. He's going to make a comparison between the the covenant made with Abraham and the covenant made through the law. And he's going to say one is greater and one is lesser based on whether it came straight from God or whether it came through mediaries. What does he, he say here about the law in verse 19? He says it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. You remember Mount Sinai, the people couldn't go up there. Moses and some other leaders went up, but not the people in general. So we know the intermediary was Moses, right? So it came from God through Moses to the people. But there was one more level of passing on. If you read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 before the authorities, he said the law was also given through angels. So not only is there Moses in between the people and God, there's also angels. So it's almost third hand when you think of it that way. Okay, now how did Abraham get his promise from God? Verse 20, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God spoke directly to Abraham. It makes that promise superior. And not just in Genesis 12 when he first made the promise. Genesis 15, God not only spoke to Abraham directly, but he showed that the keeping of the covenant was his responsibility and his alone. It was God's. I got this. I will, I will, I will. How did he show that? Well, if you remember, he reiterated the promises, okay? And then he told Abraham to cut in half several animals. Why? Well, back in that day when two people were were 
saying they agreed to a covenant. This was common practice. You'd cut, cut in half a cow or ram or, or whatever, and you'd put the two halves, like one on this side, one on this side. So you have this line of, of carcasses, and you can just put yourself in the scene. You can imagine the blood pouring out. You can imagine the stench, and you say, why in the world did they do that? Well, they did that as a symbol because both parties of the covenant would then walk through those cut animals. And it was a way of saying, if I violate this covenant, may I be like one of these animals. May, may I be struck dead. That's what I deserve if I violate this covenant. But let me ask you a question. If you know your Bible, in Genesis 15, did God and Abraham walk through those pieces? No. No, in fact, Abraham was asleep. He could not walk through those pieces. In a vision from God, God as a smoking fire pot walked alone through those pieces. And I will keep this covenant to you, Abraham. Your only part is faith, is to receive it. It's on me. It came directly from God. It's superior to the law in that regard. I'm not getting political here, so don't send me notes if you differ from me or anything, okay, please? But I remember, you, you can send me a note, just make sure it's not nasty. A couple, couple years ago, I was shopping in the store at Fry's in the meat department. I got a FaceTime from home. My in-laws were out, and Carolyn and the boys were there, and, and they're on FaceTime. They say, Dad, the governor's here. Doug Ducey's here walking on our street. And they, they turned the phone to show Doug Ducey's face right in front of our house. So I'm in the meat department at Fry's talking to the governor. I didn't know much what to say, but I thought, hey, that's, that's pretty cool that he's on Sage Vista by our house. And I think about which, which is more impactful in a campaign, that or if we had gotten some generic form letter from some of his staff workers in the mail. Right? It, it's obvious, the fact that he showed up, that, that, that's more impactful. God spoke directly to Abraham when he said, it's by faith, Abraham. It's my promise. I will. I will. It's superior to the law. Okay, now let's go back. Why then the law? To show sin to be transgression. Second, this gets to the true heart of it all. To show our need for a Savior. To show Israel time and time again they needed a Savior. Matthew Henry, an old-time commentator who I enjoy reading every now and again, he used the word obnoxious. He said it was to show Israel how obnoxious they were. That's not just true of Israel. That's true of all of us apart from Christ. We're obnoxious lawbreakers in need of a Savior. Verse 21, he says, is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. We learned last week, that's not there. No one is justified by the law. Okay? If, if they could have been, what did Bill teach a couple weeks ago? Christ died in vain. If you could be saved by the law... This sacrifice was a waste. Who would dare say that in this room? It couldn't come by the law. So why then the law? Verse 22, the scripture, particularly the law, imprisoned 
everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There's that word until again. What's the coming faith? We, we said that faith was always around. What is the coming faith? It was the faith in Jesus Christ, okay? But I want to look at some of these words there, picturesque, imprisoned, held captive, imprisoned again. In the original language, it, it's very strong. Some of those words were used for fish in a net. Like the fisherman closes that net and guess what? You are not getting out on your own. Unless somebody comes and helps you out, you're, you're a goner, okay? City under siege, your, your city's surrounded. And, and there's no way out. A uh, prisoner under guard. You're locked up by the law and, and you can't get out. What do, what do all these things do? When you look at the law and you see I've broken it and you feel that guilt, it, it makes you feel desperate, right? It makes you, if you're honest at least, and you don't suppress it, yeah, I, need, I need someone to get me out of here. I'm dying here without help from the outside. The law is not contrary to the promise they just have different purposes it works with the promise the law serves the promise by showing us our need i think about purpose i think about this you go to the doctor and he puts his stethoscope on your heart or your lungs and and he hears something concerning he says there's something wrong here and then he takes that same stethoscope that little round metal part and he starts trying to cut you open with it and he said what in the world are you doing that stethoscope is not for operating on me. It may have showed you that something needs work done, but you better go find somebody with a scalpel or something, okay? That's not what that stethoscope is for. The law is not meant to save us. It's meant to show us the need. We need something else, someone else to save us. Or, or think about it like many have throughout the years. You're in the bathroom in the morning, and you look, and you see a booger in your nose in the mirror. Okay, now none of you in your right mind are going to go up there and try to get the booger out with the mirror, right? <laughs> in fact, Warren Wearsby said, if you do, your, your uh, significant other is likely to send you out for an evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> same, same with the, with the scruff. You see, I, I got a scruffy face and I'm going to an interview. Guys, Bill, when you need to trim your beard, do you ever just uh, nudge it on the mirror? No, what you do, you grab a razor, right? Different purposes. The mirror shows you, the razor helps you deal with it. Okay, the purpose of the law is not to save us. It is to show us our need for a Savior. Show us we're sinners. Now, what's... what's the good news in all of this. The good news is sinners are the only kind of people Jesus came to save. He couldn't help those who pretended to be righteous in and of themselves. Sinners are the only kind of people Jesus came to save. Not to mention, we're arguing that the law is not contrary to the promises. They work together in God's plan. Here's some other points that back that up. Even when Israel was under the law, 
the, the law and the prophets there all pointed forward to a Savior. That's why Paul says in Romans, we're saved apart from law, but the law and the prophets speak of this salvation. Okay? Think about some of the things they had under that law. God knew, even though he said, thou shalt and thou shalt not, he knew they were going to do and they were going to not do. Okay, so what did he provide? A sacrificial system. All of those lambs sacrificed as substitutes on behalf of the people daily pointed forward, and particularly the Day of Atonement, the powerful pointing forward to a Savior. You know what happened on the Day of Atonement? Two goats. One was, was slaughtered. And the blood was taken by the high priest into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence was. And you know what was in the Ark of the Covenant, among other things? The law. The law they had broken repeatedly. And you know what was guarding the Ark of the Covenant? Those cherubim, those angels. You have this picture of God's holiness in a law that you've broken. It's been pointed out by me. That's a terrifying picture for a sinner. But what did the priest do? He took the blood of that sacrificial goat with the sins of the people and put it on what is called the mercy seat to satisfy the wrath of God against the people. Temporarily, we know, because it pointed forward to Christ. You know what happened to the other goat? The priest would symbolically put the sins of the people on that goat and they would send it out into the wilderness to, to take the sin away. Now, tradition tells us every now and again that goat came back into the camp. So eventually they said, we don't want that goat coming back. So they'd send some guy out to follow it and push it off a cliff. <laughs> they don't want that, that guy coming back. <laughs> now think about what's the picture here. Okay, Christ is the fulfillment of that. As Hebrews tells us, he's the sacrifice once for all. He, his blood he spilled on the cross to pay for the filth of our sins. He, he takes our sin away, and it ain't coming back. It's as far as the east is from the west to those who come to him by faith. It, it all pointed forward to that. Not to mention, you remember when Jesus showed up in his earthly ministry, what the religious leaders would often try to do? They were kind of like kids who made, mom tells them one thing, so they want to go get a second opinion from dad, and then they try to pit mom and dad against each other, right? What, what do mom and dad say? Good parents say, we're on the same team here, right? So they tried to do that with Moses and Jesus. They tried to lift Moses up and, and bring Jesus down, but what did Jesus say? He said, if you believed Moses... You would believe me. We're on the same team. Moses was a servant in the house. I'm the son. He spoke of Jesus as he recorded God's words in Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. Moses writes, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. God's speaking to Moses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Who was that prophet to come? Jesus. Prophet, priest, and king. Okay? 
So you look at these two purposes, right? To, to show our need for a savior and to show us transgression. Bottom line, the law gives us a perspective on our sin and it's not pretty. It gives us that perspective, but it gives us no power to deal with it. It's almost like, imagine if we had uh, brought Jaden's car home when he started driving and we gave him the manual. And he reads the manual and he gets in and, and he turns the key and he says, it won't start. And I said, well, there's no gas. <laughs> the manual ain't going to, he may be able to read and find out all about that car, but it's not going to go without a power source, right? Okay, that's kind of like the law. You get a perspective on your sin, but you can't deal with it. You don't have the power. It gives us a revelation of our sin, but no power for an inner revolution to take care of it. So how does this law lead us to Christ? Verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until, there it is again, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, we often think of this guardian here as a school teacher, which is not quite accurate. The Greek word is pedagogue. A wealthy Roman man might have children, and between the ages of 6 to 16, when they have not yet reached the status of adulthood, he would sometimes put them under the care of a slave in his house called a pedagogue. That pedagogue was responsible for discipline. In fact, they were often harsh in their discipline. If you ever had someone that wrapped your knuckles with a ruler or something, you maybe think of some of these pedagogues. They were responsible to watch over their behavior and often to walk them to and from school where they would learn from a teacher. It's a great picture for the law because it is a disciplinarian. You read it and you feel the guilt you feel the need, it also leads us someplace. But not just to a teacher. Because we need more than a teacher. If, if education could solve our problems, does it? <laughs> Look around. We need more than a teacher. What do we need? We need a Savior. Pedagogue leads us to the Savior. This is who you need. So you say, okay. We're no longer under that pedagogue. We've, we've come to Jesus in faith if you've trusted in him. What do we do with the law? Do we just unhitch from the Old Testament, as some have said? No. No. Number one, what does Paul tell us? All scripture is God-breathed. Okay. So... What, if any, of those Old Testament commands do we need to obey as Christians today? Now, that's been discussed for centuries. I'm not going to pretend to solve that whole mystery in five minutes. But I want to give us some guidelines that I think will be helpful. If an Old Testament law has been repeated in the New Testament, you know, as one of Christ's followers, you are to obey that law. That's one of the clearest signs. Okay, second, whether it's repeated in the New Testament or not, I believe if it's a moral law that shows us something of God's moral morality, his right and wrong, we are to obey that. 
even in some of the ones that you say, that doesn't apply directly to me as it's stated. Like, let me give you an example. When we went through Ruth, it said, hey, don't harvest your whole field. Leave some for the poor and the needy. How many of you all have a field? I don't. But what can I take from that? What does that show us about God's heart? I should leave margin in my life to help those around me who are in, in need, going beyond the letter of the law to the Spirit. But what are we not to under responsibility to follow as believers? Well, many of the, the civil laws that were for the nation of Israel, for example, don't wear a shirt made of two fabrics, or men don't cut your hair in certain ways. Why, why don't I have to obey that? Because I'm not a citizen of Israel. I'm a citizen of heaven. Okay, and, and Jesus made this clear, for example, with the food laws. All food is clean now, okay? But is there something we can learn even from those laws which we don't have to obey directly? You betcha. Especially that latter one about guys not cutting their hair in certain places. Why was that for Israel? Because many of their pagan neighbors would do that in their mourning rituals. And God wanted them to be a people set apart, to be holy, okay? Can I go get a haircut today? If you went to Best Cuts this morning, or are you, should you be feeling guilty? No. Well, what should you be thinking about it as a believer? Am I living a life that's separate? from the world around me that's different in my behavior? Or am I just like them? Okay, so not the civil laws, because I'm a citizen of heaven, not the ceremonial laws either, the, the sacrifices, the priests, the temple, why? You read the book of Hebrews, we have a high priest, his name is Jesus. He's better than all those that came and went. We have a sacrifice, Jesus, once for all. He is the temple. That's why. Hopefully that's helpful. As we close, I want to talk about our new status in Christ. And I think this is a message that speaks not only to us in this room, but this is a message that the world needs to hear and that we're here to share. So I go into our new status in Christ. I, th I think about some things that every person in this world is looking for. Every person in this world is looking for significance. Every person in this world is looking for belonging. Every person in this world is looking for purpose. Much of our sin comes not because these are illegitimate desires, but because we look for these things in sinful ways. Our family's been praying and thinking a lot about our nation. Buffalo, every weekend in Chicago, Texas. And one of the things that troubles me about much of the coverage is it scratches the surface. It doesn't go deep enough. Is there some value in speaking about mental illness and doing a better job with that? I believe so. Is there some value in evaluating laws some limited value and, and some restraint, possibly. But neither of those goes deep enough. Rarely will you hear someone speak about the evil, the sinful evil within the heart of man, apart from Christ. 
And sinful man goes looking for significance, belonging, and purpose in all kinds of heinous ways. I think about that young man in Texas. I think about significance, belonging, and purpose. And one thing I read this week that stuck with me, actually Carolyn read it and told me about it. That 18-year-old man had not seen his father in two years. Now, I'm not going to judge his father, but the father claimed it was because he didn't want to potentially give the grandmother, who was the boy's guardian, COVID. For two years, that boy's father removed himself from his life. And you think about what that does to a man at that stage, 16, 17, 18. What's that do to your sense of significance, acceptance, belonging? Does that excuse what happened? No. No, but what a hole I suspect that left. And what I want to share this morning is we have in the good news of Jesus Christ those very three things that everyone needs. True significance, true belonging, and true purpose. I want to start with the significance. Verse 26, the pedagogue has led us to Christ. What happens when we put our faith in him? In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. There's a difference between children and sons in the Greek context here. Maturity. You're no longer an immature child under the law. You've reached maturity in the family. You're a son. You have all the rights that go with that, including the inheritance. You're son of God in Christ Jesus through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I believe that baptism into Christ is, is speaking of one of two things, either the spirit baptism, by which we're all placed into the body of Christ, or the water baptism, which represents that. The, the key part here is into Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, I want to talk to you about the importance of being in, in Christ. A lot of times we talk about Christ being in us as believers, that's hugely important. That's a scriptural truth. But one author I read this week brought up the point that for every reference to Christ being in us in scripture, there are 10 to us being in Christ. This last line here says you put on Christ. This likely brought to mind in the Roman Empire something that would happen when that son reached maturity you know what he would do he, he would set aside his children's clothes and he would be given a toga a, a robe that signified his maturity what is our robe it is Christ you've you put on Christ what does that mean as hard as it is to believe probably for you as it is for me, believer. When, when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. That's hard to believe for us sometimes, isn't it? Not that he doesn't know our sin and sometimes discipline for us, but we are covered in the righteousness of his son. Do you believe that? Think of the baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ because of Christ and him alone, that passes on to you because of Christ. What does that mean for my daily behavior when I come to that moment of temptation? 
And last week I misspoke. I said God will not tempt us beyond what we could bear. What I, what I meant was God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. God doesn't tempt anyone. But what do we do at that moment of temptation? As a believer, we think about the significance of being in Christ. And we don't go to, what do I feel right now? Don't go there. Your feelings will take you a lot of places. You go to, who am I? Who am I in Christ? That's what you do. Pilgrim's Progress. One more. There's so many great pictures in there. Christian's on his journey. And one time, I'm going to paraphrase, he confesses to someone along the way, I'm tired of my annoyances. And as they talk, you find out that his annoyances are the constant temptations that come his way. But he says there are some, some times where I'm able to vanquish those temptations. And the, the person talking to him said, when are you able to vanquish those temptations? And he says, when I remember four things. When I remember the sight of the man upon the cross. When I remember where it is I'm going. He was going to the celestial city. Right? When I remember the words of the scroll that has been given me. You all got it in your hands, many of you. But last but not least, he said, when I remember the new garments that were given me. When we remember that we are in Christ. That's when we're most likely able to overcome those temptations. John MacArthur talked about this being in Christ, how unique it is to the Christian faith. You may hear someone say, I follow the teachings of Buddha. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm living in Buddha? No. You may know someone who follows the teachings of Muhammad. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm in Muhammad? You understand the difference? Ours is not merely a faith of education. It is immersion into our Savior. His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, His power, His life. And the way we experience this today, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit more next week, He sent the Holy Spirit so that we serve not in the, the old way of the letter, just reading it and looking on the surface and trying our best in our flesh, but in the, the new way of the Spirit. I'm now motivated to do it, and I have power to obey God. I think about that in terms of the Spirit and water. In Ezekiel 36, God speaks to Israel, but these promises come through Abraham to all who believe. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. What's a heart of stone? It's a heart that resists God and everything he, he wants to do in our lives, right? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a, a receptive heart that will hear what I say and receive it in faith. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
She talks about the water there. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. And later he talks about the spirit as this fountain of, uh, of life. I think about something that happened yesterday. I had the three boys out front with me doing some yard work. I heard Jay was out there too. Anybody else out there? Two boxwood bushes had, had grown over the 20 years we've been in our house and gotten too close to our pine trees, so we had to get those out of the ground. And so we started with the hedge trimmers, and we were able to get the branches fairly easily, get it down pretty small, but one day it came time for the shovel, and I, my first poke with the shovel, kink, <laughs> a kink. <laughs> and thank God, you know, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. Carolyn said, hey, uh, why don't you put the hose on that for a while, turn that water on. Soften that ground up. I said, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So we did that, and guess what? The shovel went right in. I think about that. Look, most of us in our own power can take care of the outward symptoms of our sin, the branches, to make ourselves at least look and appear respectable to those around us, at least not do it when they're around. But when it comes to getting the root, it's too hard on us. We got hearts of stone apart from Christ. We need the water of God. We need the spirit of God. And then, then we got that power to get that, that root out. That's significance in Christ. I, I think about that robe putting on Christ. I can't help but think of the prodigal son. He, he came home and he just wanted to be one of the servants. But what did his dad do? So, uh-uh. He had a feast for him. Welcomed him back as a son and gave him a new... That robe is, is Christ. You're significant in Christ. Belonging. Belonging. Many in this world are longing for a place to belong. Someone to belong to, to, to have a meaningful relationship with. And we have that with God through Christ, but not only with God, the body of Christ. This, this right here is meant to be so much more than strangers sitting next to each other on a Sunday morning. This is supposed to be the primary city on a hill where the world looks and says they, they got belonging down cold. They love each other. I, I need what they have. And, and that's where we go in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we've got to be aware there are many out there in the world that would love to abuse this verse. Hey, there's no male and female. See? All you all talking about God deciding gender at birth. You, what about this verse? That's not what it means. How do we know that? Well, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, okay? Are there still Jews and Gentiles in the world, in the body of Christ? Yes, there are. Neither slave nor free. Are there still slaves and masters or, in our culture, employers and employees in the church? Yes. There are still male and female in the church. So what is this talking about? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. It means these distinctions remain in the physical world, but there is no caste system in the body of Christ. If there is a place in the world where there should be racial unity, it is the body of Christ. 
Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 2 said that dividing wall of hostility, which was a literal wall in the temple, which Gentiles could not go past, that's gone. We are all one in Christ. Slave nor free. You remember the New Testament authors hitting on this. Paul says, hey, if you're a master, you better treat your slave right because their master is your master as well. If you're a slave, don't take advantage of your master. You, you all share the same master. What did James say? Somebody comes in your church wealthy and another poor man, you better, you dare not show favoritism to that wealthy man. Why? We're all one in Christ, male and female. Are there roles for marriage in the church? You bet. Paul speaks about them in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere. This does not obliterate that. But men, you certainly better not act as though you're better before Christ than your wife or the other women in the church. Peter talked to husbands about that. He said, hey, if you're inconsiderate to your wife, your prayer life's going to be hindered. Why? Because they are fellow heirs in Christ. This was revolutionary at the time. Religious people sometimes pray to prayer. Oh, dear God. Thank you, I'm not a Gentile. Oh, dear God, thank you, I'm not a bondman. And oh, dear God, especially, thank you, I'm not a woman. All of that nonsense is gone in Christ. This should be the premier place of belonging. There's no room in the church for playing king of the hill. Because there's only one king of the hill. I'm talking about the hill of Calvary. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Significance, belonging, and lastly, purpose. How many people are wondering, why am I here? What difference does it make? What should I focus on and, and go after? Purpose. 29, he says, if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Because you're in Christ, that promise that came to Christ comes to you. The, the spiritual inheritance is coming. And I don't know all of the wonders of what that entails, but I'm going to tell you one thing, believer, you know is coming. 1 John 3, 2 talks about it. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. One day, the struggle will be over. Believer, you and I will be completely in the image of Christ. So you say, how does that provide purpose to me today? What do I spend my days thinking about? John says in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him, if you're, if you're hoping for that, if you're looking forward to that with confidence, everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. If I'm going to be totally like Christ one day, I want to jump on board right now. I want to reflect my Savior in my words, my thoughts, my actions, my life. That, that's purpose. Significance, belonging, and purpose. This is what the world needs to hear from us. This is what's available in Christ. This is what the world needs to see from us, the light shines brightest in the darkness. I want to close with an example of that. 
Going back to the commandments, thou shalt not murder. I think about Texas. We're processing through it as a family. And we're talking at the dinner table. What's the, the opposite of, of murder? You get to that place where you view someone as just a target. Love your neighbor as yourself. Right? The world needs to see people that don't just talk about that, but do that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The world needs to see that light so they know where to come. I'm going to close with a post from my friend Bob Slack. Carolyn and I grew up with Bob in Ohio in the college group at church. And after we left Ohio, his mother and father one day on their farm were, were shot in the face and killed. Bob was injured. This was years ago, and, and he just wrote this this week. I, I think his words are worth heeding because they go deeper than most at times like this. He wrote, I wasn't going to say anything, but I feel like I should. Sixteen years ago on May 16th, I lost my parents to gun violence. I'm a victim of gun violence. I struggled more than normal this past week because on May 14th, an 18-year-old kid opened fire on shoppers in Buffalo, Yesterday, another 18-year-old shot and killed 19 children and two adults. This is hard, as we all do. I grieve for those that were murdered. I hurt for the families who were left behind, but my greatest pain, I feel, is for the survivors. They will forever live with replaying the events of this day in their heads. They'll struggle convincing themselves, if only I did this differently, or I wish I could have done this. Survivor's guilt is real, and it can be crippling, I know. So I'm not okay. The perpetrators of these violent acts got to a point where they quit viewing their victims as human. When you quit seeing someone as human, you can do anything to them. The man who murdered my parents said that shooting them was like shooting a deer. They weren't people to him. We all have value. Please strive to see the value in others and instill that value in your children. Lastly, stop what you're doing and go give your family a hug. Tell them you love them. If you need to call someone, go do it. If you need to forgive someone, go do it. If you need to be forgiven, go ask for it. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Yet you do not know what your life will be tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away, James 4, 14. He looked deeper. The gospel looks deeper. This world needs significance, acceptance, and belonging, and we have the ultimate realization of that in Christ. Let's not just enjoy it for ourselves. Let's, let's go out there and overflow as we talk about with God's help. Let's pray for opportunities. Let's look for the open doors, and let's seize the moment. We are here for such a time as this. Let's pray, Lord. Your plan is much higher than we are. <laughs> I think of Paul's response in Romans 11 as he looked at all the twists and turns you've taken in history to, to show us our sin and, and bring a Savior in the right time and 
on and on. And his end response was just to praise you. No one is your counselor. You are higher. Your ways are higher. And we thank you for the beautiful plan you've unfolded. We thank you that in Christ we can find significance, acceptance, belonging. If there's anyone in this room looking for that, draw them to the foot of the cross. Let them know they're, they're one of the sinners you did that for. You died for their sin and rose again, that they might be in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, help us to remember these truths. Stop going with the, the fickle whims of our emotions. I feel this way, I feel that way. No, I am in Christ. I'm a son of God. I'm a new creation. Help us to believe that, to live it. Help us to spread that opportunity to a world that needs that message of reconciliation. Lord, help us make the most of our days. We pray for healing for all those affected by these recent tragedies. And we pray you'd help us be a part of the body of Christ that shows this world what it should look like in you. Even as we take our offering today, I pray that you give us wisdom as a church to use it for that purpose, to be faithful till the day you return or our, our time comes to meet you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.